Hello, this is the Poetry Corner at the St. Constantine School. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell, and today we're going to be talking about a poem by the current Poet Laureate of the United States. Not everyone knows that the United States has a Poet Laureate, but every year or so the Library of Congress nominates a poet, usually a poet who has already published several collections of poetry and is at least well-renowned in poetry circles to be the Poet Laureate for at least a year, though often Poet Laureates will serve for several years. I don't know that there are term limits on Poet Laureates. Some poets have been Poet Laureate for a year or two and then ceded their place to someone else and then been asked back a few years later. The current Poet Laureate is Tracy K. Smith. She was born in New England but grew up in California, and she's relatively young. She's in her mid-40s and has published a couple collections of poetry, most recently Life on Mars, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 2011. One of the things I wanted to do in talking about a Tracy Smith poem is remind people that we do have poets who are working at the top of their craft today and the United States does officially recognize poets and try to promote them and also encourage them and enable them to promote poetry in the US. So former poet laureates have done things from traveling around the country interviewing common people about their favorite poems. Robert Pinsky had what he called the favorite poems projects where he say went to the factories of Detroit and talked to auto workers about what poems they loved. Kay Ryan a number of years ago did a poetry calendar that had a poem a day that you could tear off and carry in your pocket and I think she encouraged people to hand out these poems from the poetry calendar to passers-by you meet on the street. Not sure how successful it was uh, but poets who have the poet laureateship uh, usually focus on promoting poetry in the US. So I thought I'd do my part by promoting Tracy Smith's poetry. I don't know a lot about Tracy Smith's religious background, but many of her poems in Life on Mars, her 2011 collection, ask really big questions about this intersection between sci-fi, science fiction storytelling, and religion. And so I thought I'd read a poem by her called The Universe as Primal Scream, uh, which has some very provocative images and questions about the divine in it. It also, I think, is a good example of the type of poetry that's lauded today and the type of poetry that a lot of students are encouraged to write and imitate. I'll have some thoughts on the formal aspects of this poem and how it's interacting with big questions that former poets that we've already talked about before, people like Don Patterson, Jeffrey Hill, Henry Longfellow, Emily Dickinson, etc., asked before Smith and how she's kind of putting her own take on them. So this is the universe as primal scream. 5 p.m. on the nose. They open their mouths and it rolls out. High, shrill, and metallic. First the boy, then his sister. Occasionally, they both let loose at once, and I think of putting on my shoes to go up and see whether it is merely an experiment their parents have been conducting upon the good crystal, which surely lies shattered to dust on the floor. Maybe the mother is still proud of the four pink lungs she nursed to such might. Perhaps, if they hit the magic decibel, the whole building will lift off and will ride to glory like Elijah. If this is it, if this is what their cries are cocked toward, let the sky pass from blue to red to molten gold to black. Let the heaven we inherit approach. 
whether it is our dead in the Old Testament robes or a door opening onto the roiling infinity of space, whether it will bend down to greet us like a father or swallow us like a furnace, I'm ready to meet what refuses to let us keep anything for long, what teases us with blessings, bends us with grief, wizard, thief, the great wind rushing to knock our mirrors to the floor to sweep our short lives clean. How mean our racket seems beside it. My stereo on shuffle, the neighbor chopping onions through a wall, all of it just a hiccup against what may never come for us. And the kids upstairs still at it, screaming like the dawn of man as if something they have no name for has begun to insist upon being born. Uh, reading a Tracy Smith poem out loud, I'm realizing, is a much more enjoyable experience than reading it silently. I've read this poem silently, and I enjoyed it. I thought it was powerful. Reading it out loud, as I've just done, actually reasserts to me the power of Smith's verse. You'll notice that her verse is very colloquial, similar to someone like Robert Frost or the contemporary poet Billy Collins. It's not something that you would necessarily read and be put off by its language. Jeffrey Hill has sometimes been accused of being too sophisticated, if you remember his line, autumn resumes the land. It already sounds a little bit uh, hoity-toity, uh, the soft thudding bays. I think we spent some time thinking about that line. It feels nice to say, you can think about it, there's a visceral quality to it, but it's not necessarily the sort of chat you'd hear over dinner at Chipotle, say. Tracy Smith's is, at least at first. Uh, this poem is written in actually four stanzas, and I want to kind of take it stanza by stanza. Stanza number one, 5 p.m. on the nose, they open their mouths and it rolls out high, shrill, and metallic. First the boy, then his sister. This is the first two and a half lines. It's an interesting beginning. It's 5 p.m. on the nose. Okay, on the nose, of course, very, uh, very colloquial term. Probably even a regional colloquial term. It would be interesting to see what region she's evoking here. I know she teaches at Princeton. I'm not sure if this is a uh, New Jersey way to say it. I think I would say 5 p.m. on the dot. 5 p.m. on the nose, they open their mouths and it rolls out. High, shrill, and metallic, first the boy, then his sister. Kids are screaming upstairs, I think is the, is the experience that's being described here. If you have children, you know that this happens uh, more often than not, perhaps. And if you live near children, you know that sometimes they are quite loud. But Smith here is describing it as if it's some sort of ritual or some sort of habit that they have that at five they have to start screaming. Occasionally they both let loose at once, and I think of putting on my shoes to go up and see whether it is merely an experiment their parents have been conducting upon the good crystal, which must surely lie shattered to dust on the floor. Uh, at this point, this is the end of the first stanza, this image of the shattered crystal. This sounds a little bit like what I would expect from a Billy Collins poem, a common experience, someone wondering about the reason for it, and giving us a joke about, ah, maybe the parents are seeing uh, what threshold their crystal has before it shatters from the high decibels. If the poem stopped here, we might have a good chuckle and say, ah, a poet is up to their good old uh, task of 
writing about common experience in a colloquial way that makes us have a good chuckle and think about how funny common life is. But no, Smith has much bigger desires than that. Maybe the mother, this is the beginning of the second stanza, maybe the mother is still proud of the four pink lungs she nursed to such might. It's really these lines, I think, that solidify the kind of voice and kind of exploration that Smith wants to do here. All of a sudden, we go inside the screamer. It's not just the children and their sound. It's the four pink lungs she nursed to such might. The mother figure here is taking over and is, as often in poetry, this source of might and uh, really source of all qualities for the child, in this case, the children. And I think this is an interesting image here, the four pink lungs. I almost get a sense that Smith is picturing not two children yelling above her, but almost four lungs sort of pumping in and out sound from above her. It's a funny image, uh, almost like one of those uh, kids' books where you learn about anatomy, where they have the respiratory system and you see sort of just the lungs and the bronchial tubes sort of sitting there on a transparent plane. And I think that that's very much true of how Smith does poetry. Smith is interested in science, in how we explore and understand the world, not just of space, which he's going to get to, but also of the physiology of our bodies. I think this kind of language places her poetry as something that is surely written in the last part of the 20th, early 21st century. But then we get a little more ethereal. Perhaps if they hit the magic decibel, the whole building will lift off and will ride to glory like Elijah. If this is it, if this is what their cries are cocked toward, let the sky pass from blue to red to molten gold to black. Let the heaven we inherit approach. All of a sudden, this has moved from a common kind of funny observation in the first stanza to this sort of almost scientific, maternal, and slightly beautiful lyric description to all of a sudden this scene of Old Testament rapture. Elijah, of course, is caught up to heaven in a chariot of fire, not just any chariot. And Smith sort of sees the building rocketing off into space. And it's interesting how her language is both evocative of this Old Testament saints being caught up into heaven, but also this description of what we might experience if we were in fact lifting off in a rocket going up into space, this first blue to red to molten gold to black. I actually think of the scene at the end of Independence Day, that classic Jeff Goldblum, Will Smith movie, where they fly up into space to intercept an enemy spacecraft. And for a while, the sky above them is blue and it slowly changes color till all of a sudden it's sort of a shock of black. Now it's strange that I just talked about Independence Day, a very probably fake, not very realistic at all, experience of going up into space. But I actually think it's what Smith wants us to think about. All through Life on Mars, she talks about not actual scientific documented accounts of the experience of space travel, but she talks about science fiction and even pop culture interactions with science fiction. Life on Mars, of course, is the name of a David Bowie song. David Bowie is this uh, inheritor of sci-fi tradition and of course puts his own take on it in his music and his songs. 
So this is sort of a description of what we've seen in movies, but also a description of what we see in the Old Testament. And there's this connection between sci-fi, I think which to some people might be a sort of latter-day Old Testament fantastic tales, and the Old Testament itself. Also, I think there's a question that might arise in our mind, especially as people of faith who take the Old Testament seriously. How seriously is Smith taking these questions of divine rapture? Is she reducing divine rapture to just another sci-fi movie? Is she perhaps elevating our wonder at sci-fi to a religious experience? Let's uh, look at the last two stanzas uh, and see what we think. Whether it is our dead in Old Testament robes, or a door opening onto the roiling infinity of space, whether it will bend down to greet us like a father, or swallow us like a furnace, I'm ready to meet what refuses to let us keep anything for long. I want to stop there. It's not quite the end of the stanza, but that's the line that actually convinced me that I wanted to talk about this poem. Because all of a sudden, I think we're in territory that we've talked about uh, with Christian Wyman. This idea that the divine is not just this thing we yearn after in old holy books or in science fiction, but the divine is something that seems caught up and involved in our loss, in our grief. This description of the roiling infinity that will bend down to greet us like a father or swallow us like a furnace. Is the divine, is the ultimate out there in space something that's loving and personal? Is it something that will destroy us? Uh, we talk about often the vacuum of space, though Smith, uh, her religious language is, is very carefully chosen here because she doesn't say, greet us like a father or suck us out into the vacuum of space. She says, swallow us like a furnace. And we know that the furnace itself is an image of vengeance, uh, even of capital punishment in the Old Testament. But also, as we know with the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story, the furnace is a place of judgment by kings, but also a place of meeting God. I'm ready to meet what refuses to let us keep anything for long. I love this. She doesn't say, I'm ready to meet God. But she might as well. But she names him, it, whatever her conception of God is, as that thing that refuses to let us keep anything for long. The divine, the ultimate, whatever is out there, seems to be for her that which keeps us mortal, that which keeps us maybe even ephemeral. What teases us with blessings, bends us with grief, wizard, thief, the great wind rushing to knock our mirrors to the floor. Notice that grief, wizard, thief. Uh, Smith avoids regular meter and regular end rhymes to the point where I sometimes wish she would put them in more. But she catches us off guard. This is a very Plathian thing to do, by the way, also a very Hopkinsian thing to do. She catches us off guard with these internal rhymes. Bends us with grief, wizard, thief, the great wind. Of course, the great wind, uh, we think of Pentecost, right? There was a rushing wind. But it's interesting what she says the wind does. The wind knocks our mirrors to the floor. So earlier it was uh, the thing that doesn't let us keep what we have for long. But here it seems to be knocking away that which keeps us looking at ourselves, which seems maybe a little bit more positive. This is a, this is a spirit of tough love. It doesn't let us become narcissists. 
maybe it doesn't let us even hold on to the things we love about ourselves that maybe even aren't so bad for us. It seems to know, or it seems to think at least, that we need to stop dwelling upon ourselves. I think of the mirror of Erised in Harry Potter, probably something that Smith herself is thinking of, given that she interacts with fantasy and sci-fi literature. Let's finish by looking at this last stanza. Wind rushing to knock our mirrors to the floor to sweep our short lives clean. How mean, it's wonderful uh, internal rhyme again. Clean, how mean, our racket seems beside it. My stereo on shuffle. The neighbor chopping onions through a wall. All, uh, one, once again, that's actually a great rhyme right there. Sorry to stop in the middle of a phrase, but I gotta, I gotta uh, marvel at it for a minute. Wall is the end of a line, all is the beginning of a line. So she's been doing these internal rhymes where the rhyming words are within a line. Now she's punched them to the end and beginning. It's like these, these rhymes are chasing each other through the poem. They keep getting away from each other, but they have almost caught up to each other. All of it just a hiccup against what may never come for us. So it's interesting we, we kind of return to this first imagery that's a little bit more casual and everyday. We had Elijah and Pentecost and sci-fi scenes, but now we're back to stereo on shuffle, neighbor chopping onions through a wall, a hiccup against what may never come for us. All of a sudden, this, this seems to have slipped back, perhaps toward agnosticism. Maybe, maybe that ultimate experience, that Elijah rapture, maybe that's never coming. But then finally we have this. And the kids upstairs still at it, screaming like the dawn of man, as if something they have no name for has begun to insist upon being born. The adults seem lulled by their stereos and their everyday chopping onions. But the kids seem to be enraptured with this mysterious other. We've talked about the invocation of great poetry as a dangerous and bold thing to do, and this is something that Smith is doing here. She's calling upon Yeats. Yeats, in one of his most famous poems, talks about some rude beast slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. And it's it's this image almost of the Antichrist uh, in, in Yeats, or maybe Christ. Um, she's calling upon this, but she's been talking about this ultimate experience, this thing above us, which either judges us, takes away things from us, which enraptures us, which maybe throws us into a fiery furnace and then meets us there. And it's the children that she returns to as those who seem to be, well, aiding it in being born. And this idea of birth, once again, brings us back, as we talked about uh, in a Plath poem uh, earlier, uh, it brings us back to Christmas. But this is a Christmas with sci-fi in mind. This is a Christmas with uh, the alien and the ultimate and the mysterious in mind. This isn't a Christmas where we all know the God of Israel is coming. This is a, a 21st century Christmas image, which like Yeats's 20th century Christmas image, is a little scared and a little scary. But I laud Smith for continuing, even as she brings in pop culture references, David Bowie, sci-fi movies, for continuing to use the language of the Old and New Testament, to continue to use this long Christian tradition of asking about the divine, not just asking whether it exists, but trying to understand our loss, our pain, our hope, our joy through it still, even in this late age.
This has been the Poetry Corner. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell.